Luke chapter 14, and today our message is called Lunch Lessons with the Lord. Um, I don't know if I could get cornier, but I, I believe in myself. I think I could probably go further. Lovely Lunch Lessons with the Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so we've obviously been in Luke for a pretty significant amount of time, and a cool thing about Luke is that um, he's a really good writer. And so throughout the book of Luke, we've seen lots of meals that Jesus has had. And what I noticed this week as I was studying was that each of these meals tell us a different attribute of Jesus and his ministry and of how we as followers are to model him and uh, are to uh, are to follow him that is um, and so so meals are become a very important thing an important theme throughout the book of Luke and we're going to look at a few of those today um, but we we see the meal the importance of meals even in our in our context in our culture uh, today the fact is that uh, you really get to know someone well once you've had dinner with them and you might be introduced someone on the street just running into them hap happenstance or whatever but until you've sat down and, and, and taken time to eat with someone uh, you probably only know them on a superficial level um, there's something about breaking bread together and, and you know, committing to spend that hour or two hours or whatever it is uh, in each other's presence over food that, uh, that brings us closer or uh, helps us at least understand each other better uh, and so we see that, that importance as well throughout the book of Luke. Um, he demonstrates that these meals are important and that Jesus is teaching us things through them. And so uh, we're just going to do a, a review of pretty much all the meals that, uh, that Luke records throughout, uh, throughout his gospel today. Um, the text that we're in today is chapter 14 of Luke, uh, and it's the... It's also a meal. The, the, it's the last meal, actually, that we see recorded uh, by Luke until we get to uh, the Passover meal before, uh, before, Christ is, uh, before Christ goes to the cross. So, so we're going to walk through these meals, um, starting with chapter 5. Uh, the, the first meal that we see is um, when Jesus goes to the house of Levi, the tax collector. He's calling Levi to be his disciple. Uh, and Levi invites him to, uh, to have dinner with him with his tax collector buddies. Um, so chapter 5, he's, uh, he approaches Levi and asks him to follow him, and Levi throws this great banquet for him is what it's called. And uh, the, the message that we see in this is found because of the response that the Pharisees have toward uh, Jesus eating with the tax collectors. He says this in chapter 5, verses 30 to 32. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a, physi of a physician, but those who are sick, uh, but rather those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in the first meal that we see Jesus having, he's 
telling them really his purpose and ministry. He's come not, not for those who think they're healthy. He's coming for those who know they're sick, who know they need a Savior. He's coming for those who need repentance and who understand that. And so the first lesson that we learn from Jesus at, at these meals is that disciples are those who know they're sinners and are in need of repentance. So repentance is the, is the first thing we learn from, from eating with the Lord. Um, the second meal that we see is uh, when the, the woman finds out, the simple woman finds out that Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee. And she goes there and breaks open this alabaster flask of perfume and pours it out on the Lord's feet and washes his feet with her hair. This just extravagant celebration of, of Jesus and, and uh, honor toward him. And the Pharisee, in his mind, thinks this, this man doesn't even know who is touching his feet. This is a sinful woman. It's publicly known that she is sinful, probably a prostitute. And, and he's saying in his mind that this, who is this guy who, who thinks this, this is, that this is okay? And Jesus points out this, uh, he shares this parable with him. And the parable is about uh, a man who is forgiven much and a man who is forgiven little. And the, the lesson boils down to this in, in chapter 7, verses 47 to 49. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? So the second lesson we see is simply that disciples, followers of Jesus, are grateful for the forgiveness they've been given. Uh, the Pharisee, you know, he thought he had it all together. He was righteous and, and he had done everything he appropriately or, or so to speak. Uh, and so he didn't have an understanding that he needed some extravagant forgiveness. He thought he was okay, a pretty good guy or whatever. Uh, but Jesus is saying, this woman knows her need and she knows she needs forgiveness and I'm the one that's able to extend that. So, you know, there's, there's sort of two aspects to every one of these meals, really. And one is how we follow as disciples, and one is who Jesus is claiming to be. You know, in the first example, we saw that, you know, disciples are sinners who need repentance. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one declaring that message, and that's my purpose. So we see his identity in that. And this, it's similar in this one. You know, he's saying disciples are those who are grateful for the forgiveness they received. And the amazing thing about this is that He's saying, I'm the one that's forgiving sins. So Jesus is claiming to be the one that preaches repentance. He's also now claiming to be the one who gives forgiveness, which is a powerful thing. And it's shown even in the response uh, of those at the table with him. It says, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus is claiming to be something very important. God, in fact. God is the only one that forgives sins. So this is a very strong statement by Christ that, that he has authority to forgive people's sins. So disciples are sinners in need of repentance. Disciples are grateful for forgiveness. The third thing that we see uh, in the meals that, that Luke records is found in chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. 
And the story is very familiar to all of us. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it's the third meal that Luke records with Jesus. And simply, you know, the lesson here is that disciples are those who depend on the provision of the Lord. Um, in, in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, uh, he says, it says this, Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets full of broken pieces. So Jesus now demonstrates that he is the provider in all circumstances. The, the ones that seem bleak, you know, the fact is that, as we know, you know, they had five loaves and two fish. That's not much food, especially for 5,000 people. And, uh, and after everyone ate, not only ate, but was satisfied with it. It's not like they took a few bites and to hold them over. It's like, no, they were satisfied with the meal. After they had ate and were satisfied with the meal, 12 baskets were, were picked up. And I don't, um, I don't know how much we should read into the, the 12 baskets thing and the fact that there's 12 disciples or if it's connection to, you know, tribes of Israel. I mean, 12 is an important number. It's used often, but uh, I'm not really sure if he was, what he's exactly referring to there. I don't really have any basis for understanding that, but um, it's funny to me that the disciples were the ones that were concerned about what Jesus was saying. Like, how are we supposed to find food for these people? Um, and after Jesus provides food for all these people, we suddenly end up with 12 baskets full. And I think if I'm a disciple, I'm like, okay, now we've got each a basket full of food that the Lord has provided for us. And I mean, what a lesson that, that is there as a disciple that the Lord provides in this difficult circumstance, but he also has some left over even for the disciples to take forward. I don't know if that's exactly what he's intending in having 12 baskets full. I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know. He could, have he could have had 13 or 10 or, or whatever, but he had 12 and there's 12 disciples. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it, but it warms my heart a little bit that maybe it was for them. Anyway, so we see the disciples are sinners in need of repentance. They're grateful for forgiveness and they depend on Christ's provision. The next meal that we see is in chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And this is when uh, Martha is anxiously preparing a meal for the Lord. And as she's doing so, she basically gets ticked off at Mary for not helping her in the kitchen because, you know, she was concerned about this meal. And, you know, it's not that uh, it was bad that Martha was preparing the meal. It's, it's an okay thing. But the fact that she was anxious about it was a problem. What she needed to be reflecting on was the fact that the Lord is here and, and I'm going to serve him with a joyful heart. I don't have to worry about what my sister is doing. I'm going to do this because it's what I feel I need to do. She didn't have to worry about Mary's circumstance. Um, but the lesson here is that disciples cherish the Lord's presence, whether they're, you know, preparing the food or whether they're simply sitting at his feet. And Jesus points this out to Martha in, in her angst. He says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken, taken away from her. 
You know, to me, the, the truth is I, I think Martha could have chose the good portion even while preparing the meal, uh, serving without anxiety, you know, serving knowing that someone's got to do it and, and I'm, I'm willing to do it and I'm going to do it for the Lord because he's here and I, and I want to uh, be a part of this moment. And so, um, so disciples just simply cherish the Lord's presence. The next lesson we see is found in chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. And this is another instance when Jesus is dining with some Pharisees. And this is a harder lesson to take, but, um, you know, the lesson here is that the disciples respond to the rebuke of the Lord. And in chapter 11, what we see is uh, Jesus comes to eat with them, and this is the response from the Pharisees as they watch Jesus come into the meal. In verse 38 of chapter 11, it says, The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And then from there he goes on to, you know, condemn them about many things. And it's, it's six woes that he issues to uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Teachers of the law. And sadly, what we see throughout the book of Luke is that the Pharisees never respond to Christ's rebuke. Uh, they are always rejecting him, always looking for a way to trap him, always looking for uh, a way to avoid his statements and his, his provocations. And the mark of the disciple is that they respond to the rebuke. And the fact is, we look back at the disciples and we see how much they always are messing up and always are missing things and aren't getting it right or whatever. But the fact is we do see a progression of growth with them. I mean, at some point they turned the world upside down because of their faith in Christ. And thousands became believers and, and we stand here as a, as a legacy to what he did through those first disciples. You know, we saw that they responded to the Lord's instruction and even to his rebuke. And they continue to follow him, continue to grow in him, and they change the world. And that's the same thing that can happen with us if we will listen to his rebuke and respond to it as his disciples. So, again, um, in these things we see that the Lord is, is both showing us how we respond as disciples. He's also showing us his, his identity you know, before in, in the previous example about his presence, the fact is he is willing to share his presence with us. And that is a beautiful thing. The Lord came and, and spent life in flesh with people. And now he's indwelt us with his Holy Spirit as Christians. And he gives us his presence on a daily basis. All the time he's with us. And here in this, in this rebuke, the fact is that he is a loving father that cares for his children. And he gives them a rebuke when they need it. And we should cherish even that fact that the Lord is willing to look into our lives and say, this and this need to change. Not because he's mad or angry with us, but because he loves us and wants us to progress. He wants us to move forward. So disciples respond to his rebuke. So those are the first five lessons that we learn from the meals uh, with Luke, uh, the meals through Luke. 
Uh, and that brings us to today's, uh, today's chapter, chapter 14. And we see a couple of lessons here that we'll walk through. Um, I'm going to start with chapter uh, 14, verses 7 to 11. And it says this. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than yourself uh, be invited by the host. And he who invited you both uh, invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And just to explain here quickly, um, as these people come into a wedding feast, generally they walk in in uh, order of importance, sort of, and people are supposed to take their place, their appropriate place, uh, and the the tables are sort of set up in a in a U shape, similar to this, but you know, anyway, all connected or whatever, um, and and the place of honor was the bottom of the U, and that's where the the host would sit. And then everyone, in order of importance, would sit around the wings of the youth. Uh, and so what would happen is, as people trickle in, if, if you took a place of higher honor than, than you deserved, as, as it's pointing out here, if you, say, sat at, at the host's right hand, well, all the seats behind that have been filled up by the time the host gets there. And so when the host comes in and says, you're in the wrong seat, this man needs to sit there, you go to the end. You don't go to like your appropriate spot necessarily. You go to the end of the end of the line. So, um, in in your in your your pride is shown uh, as a result. And so, and that's and that's why it says in verse uh, verse nine, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. You go from this place where you thought you deserved, and you, you were puffed up in your own pride and, and took it in your own pride. And so the host moves you toward the end. So continuing in verse 10, it says, But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up, to a, uh, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's the, you know, in a parable, usually there's a, a specific lesson that he wants you to take home. Um, and the lesson for this one is found in verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, the fact is, as a disciple, we do life in humility. We don't do life simply puffing ourselves up bigger than we actually are. We do, we do life uh, walking in, in a, humble, uh, a humble manner putting others ahead of ourselves and not putting ourselves in front of others. Disciples do life in, a, in humility. Um, Jesus, again, he tells this because he's at, you know, he's actually at a feast. He's at a meal and he's observing people do exactly what he wants them not to do. He, he's observing them uh, cherish, really, these places of honor. They they're desiring to be respected by those around them, and, and so they're, they're puffing themselves up and trying to show that, that they deserve uh, particular seats. And Jesus says, that's not how you operate. That isn't how you operate. You operate in humility, and we should do the same as disciples. The second lesson that we see 
in, in this passage today is found in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, verse 12. And it's simply that disciples demonstrate the compassion of the Lord. Verses 12 to 14 say this. And he said also to the man who, invite, who had invited him to the feast, when you, gave, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also uh, invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you, uh, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. <clears throat> so disciples aren't concerned with uh, moving ahead in their status in life by having these meals. They're concerned with giving compassionately to those who are in need. Um, I wanted to take a moment just to... Um, ask you guys to, to help me define a word here. And uh, the word is found in verse 13. It says, but when you give a, fe when you give a feast, invite the poor. So um, I want to just ask of you guys to participate in this. Um, what is it to be poor? What's, what's your definition of, of poor? To not have much, okay. I'll stimulate your thinking here. This is what dictionary.com says. Lacking enough money to live comfortably in a society. Okay. All right. Other thoughts? How can we define? Is that a good definition? Do you have a better one? <laughs> How do we define poor? Okay. How so? How could it be spiritually? something that you that you need maybe. okay other thoughts definition of poor what would your definition of poor be <laughs> all right Tim agrees with dictionary.com Sam any thoughts definition of poor <laughs> All right. So we got 33% crowd participation there. Well, 25%. Hattie's, Hattie's here too. So um, good work, Christy. You get gold stars. She actually gave a couple of definitions. So anyway. <clears throat> All right. So, um, you know, the fact is that Jesus is, is challenging them to do something different than uh, than the way culture operates. The fact is, in uh, in meals, and if you even look at you know, in if you look at business world, uh, 
The fact is a lot of times we do lunches and we do dinners and things in order to network and improve our position and to improve our status in life. And that's similar to what these, uh, the, the Pharisees were doing at this banquet. They were, they were individuals that were only seeing meals and banquets as a, as a means to improve their status, improve their influence, you know, rub shoulders with the right people, uh, you know, get to know people that could help them, uh, you know, progress in their, I guess, their development as a religious leader. Um, and so we see that in a similar way today with, with business or with politics. Um, we orchestrate meals in order to rub shoulders with the right people. We network with people over a meal in order to get to know the right people to progress our agenda or our plan or our profit or our business or whatever it, whatever it is. We, do, we, we can see examples of this even in our culture. Um, but what Christ is challenging us with is that, um, that he has compassion, not, you know, his compassion extends to all these people, all of the people of the world, including, and most importantly, uh, those who understand their lack, their, that they need, they're in need of something important. And so he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the, bl- the lame, and the blind, uh, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There's nothing that they can do uh, to help you. It's just simply, you know that it's an act of compassion that you're demonstrating uh, to them. So, um, so we, we then should act in that uh, similar manner. And we see um, in the next uh, continua- continuation of the passage that um, in, our, you know, in our lives, he's challenging us to do that, to find ways that we can uh, give to individuals and be compassionate toward them. And so we need to be challenged with, uh, with this question, simply that um, does my life demonstrate a compassion for those who are lacking or in need of things? Do I have a compassion for the poor? And does my life, does the way I operate, does the way I go about life demonstrate that the same compassion that the Lord has? So we have to challenge ourselves with that question and uh, even challenge yourself with this one, that how do we help those who can't help themselves? You know, I think a definition of the poor is uh, also one that has no hope of moving forward on their own. They see that they don't have an ability to... Um, to progress in life or, or whatever the, the case may be. And, you know, the truth is that we can look into that situation and say, well, they do have the ability to uh, earn a living or whatever. But the truth is a lot of people in a poor position don't even know that. They don't understand that they have the ability. Um, some do, and, and the ones that know they have an ability and are in a poor situation, you, that, would, that would be something totally different. That's not poor. That's lazy. That's recognizing that you have an ability to do something with your life and not doing it. That's, that's laziness. That's not poor. What's poor is being in a situation where you can't do anything about your position and you can't move forward and you don't understand that you can move forward. That is, is being in a position of poorness, or being poor. And our role as, as Christians is to have that same compassion that Christ did for the poor. And right after this... Uh, this challenge to these Pharisees to operate differently, to operate with a compassion for the poor rather than operate simply for a self-interest in the things that they do. Uh, he says this, which is uh, you know, another parable that he shares that demonstrates that 
He's not just giving them some command to do, but this is, in fact, the way that he operates. So he's not just telling them to do more stuff. He's saying, no, do this. It's important to do this uh, because you will be blessed and repaid at the resurrection of the just. But the reason that that will be so is that that is how God operates, and that is how he extends his compassion. And so we see that in the, in the following verses, verses 15, starting with verse 15. One of those who reclined at the table said uh, to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who can eat the bread in the kingdom of God. And Christ responds by saying, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he set his, uh, sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five oxen and five yoke of oxen, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled, the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The fact is that uh, Christ has extreme compassion for the poor. He desires all people to come and enjoy his feast. Uh, But what he's demonstrating here is that many have rejected his banquet. They've made excuses uh, to his invitation uh, to this this banquet. And Christ says, uh, you know, that that, uh, the servants need to go out quickly and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And this is important because uh, in the Old Testament, there's actually a restriction on the blind, lame, and the crippled uh, being able to attend the temple. And uh, so as the Pharisees are hearing this message, in the back of their mind, they're saying, those individuals are defiled. They aren't allowed to be in the presence of God. And so what we're seeing is Christ is extending his compassion beyond what the Pharisees thought that God was able to do. And he says, no, you know, these people have made excuses uh, about coming into my presence. I have invited them, and they have, they have turned me away. And so I will go to even the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled. And beyond that is an amazing thing as well. Not only have uh, these, th- these people of Israel rejected Christ's message, so Christ then goes out beyond, beyond the city, so to speak, and uh, to the highways and hedges, which... Uh, is, is a symbolism for us that he goes out to all the world, not only to those who uh, were cast out by uh, society, but also those who were beyond the culture uh, that, that the Israelites thought uh, were, were going to be part of God's kingdom. So um, Christ invites all uh, to the banquet. And the extent of his compassion is is incredibly powerful and it's shown most chiefly in the final meals that Luke talks about. 
So the, the last two meals that Luke discusses are uh, the Passover meal before Christ is taken to the cross and, uh, and finally the road to Emmaus. And um, so these two messages show us that uh, the final two lessons of, of Luke's meals, simply that disciples live because of Christ's death. And that's found in the first one, uh, Luke 22, 19 to 20. And, and we reflected on this as we enjoyed communion together. It says this, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, uh, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I love, as we look at that, just reflecting on the fact that he, he says, uh, or, or Luke records, Christ broke it. He is the one that broke it. No one broke it for him. He took the bread and he broke it. Um, and he says to him, This bread which I have chosen to break on your behalf, is for you. Take it in remembrance of me. That's exactly what Christ did. He, no one made him go to the cross. He had the power to avoid it on his own. He was God. But he broke it. He broke his body. He went to the cross of his own will and broke his body. That's how far his compassion goes, uh, not only for um, the people of Israel, uh, and not only for the crippled, the blind, the lame of Israel, uh, but also for the whole rest of the world, the Gentiles. Um, his compassion extends that far. And as disciples, we live as a result of his death. Our sins are, are washed away because of that act that he did. He broke it. He poured out his blood. In the second, uh, the, the second and the fi- final meal demonstrating his compassion uh, toward the world is found in the road, uh, road to Emmaus. And it's simply that, uh, it simply gives us this lesson that disciples have hope because of the resurrection. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, uh, two, two the disciples are walking and, and Jesus ap- appears to them after he has, um, you know, after he's been buried and raised and is walking with them and explaining to them about, uh, about the scriptures and how they point to the Messiah and all these things. And at the end of their discussion, he, um, he's sitting at the table with them, and it says this in, in chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. At that moment, that meal that they were sharing, these disciples, before, I guess they thought he was just some straggler some guy wandering along the same road they were wandering on but when he broke the bread and gave it to them and blessed it they recognized that it was jesus that he had died and that he had raised again and they went and declared this message to the rest of the disciples uh, saying the lord is risen indeed because of this fact our hope is is built on this fact that christ not only died uh, to to take away our sin, but that he rose conquering the power of death and securing eternal life for us. The fact is that we are poor people. We are the definition of poor. We are it. We cannot do anything uh, to earn our salvation. We are 
in total lack. We have no ability to um, take ourselves from where we are in a spiritual sense to where we need to be. We can't do it on our own. We are in, in completely unable to do it. And that's the definition of poor. We recognize, as disciples do, that we are sinners in need of repentance. We recognize uh, that we need forgiveness. And we recognize that He is the one that provides for that. That He has given His presence to us. We are the ones that are poor. And uh, Christ says that if we understand this, that we are blessed. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, it says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. To be poor is simply to lack hope. And as a disciple of Christ, we know that apart from Christ, we are completely without hope. But with him, we are blessed because our inheritance is the kingdom of God. When we realize that we are poor, and we are completely in need of Christ and Christ alone, that's when we are found to be rich. Because in Christ, we have the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Despite the circumstances that we're in, despite anything that we're facing, we have life in Christ. And so, though we are poor, we are rich. So we should challenge ourselves to, um, to recognize our need for repentance. We should challenge ourselves to uh, not stop being thankful for the forgiveness that we've been given. We need to be grateful for that. We need to realize that we are the worst of sinners and totally in need of God. We need to be grateful for the forgiveness that he's provided for us. We need to depend on His provision and His provision alone. We need to cherish His presence and know that His presence is a gift that we can have. We need to respond to His rebuke when He gives it. Because that's what disciples do. Those who are following Christ respond to His rebuke. We need to live life in humility. We need to demonstrate the compassion that Christ has demonstrated to us. We don't need to live our lives trying to get ahead and trying to move ourselves forward and thinking only of ourselves. We need to recognize the poor around us, those who have no ability to move forward on their own, because Christ did the same for us. We need to demonstrate His compassion for those around us. We need to know that the only reason we live is because of His death. We see that in the Passover meal. And finally, we need to place our hope in his resurrection. The fact is, he is risen indeed. And we go forth in our lives because of that. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the truth of your gospel. Lord, we recognize that we are poor. We have nothing. We have nothing to offer you. In ourselves, it's just dirty rags. 
our efforts, our, our good works that we do, they don't get us an inch closer to heaven. We are desperately in need of you. But God, we are grateful. Because in spite of the fact that we are totally unable to move ourselves forward, totally incapable of progressing closer to you on our own, you have bridged the divide in Christ. So our hearts are full of joy because Though on the outside it appears we have nothing, we have all things. Lord, your inheritance is infinite. So we don't place our trust in the things that this world can offer or the things that the world puts their trust in. Lord, we place our trust and our hope in Christ alone. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for this gospel. God, we pray that you would challenge us, that you would open our eyes to the way that you want us to extend your compassion to this city and to our world. Help us to see with spiritual eyes, not with fleshly eyes. Lord, you have great compassion for this city, greater than ours. And Lord, we will proclaim this gospel as long as you have us here on earth. You are the solid rock we stand on. You and you alone. Lord, we pray that through this week we would honor you, Lord, that you would be lifted up in our lives. Help us to learn the lessons that Luke records in his gospel around these meals. Help us to respond to you and to what you're doing in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.